Welcome along everyone, this is uh, Tim Walsh here from the Resort Podcast episode number 14 here on the 13th of May 2021, uh, another podcast this week and uh, this week, um, so today's guest is uh, Tori Keating from X Travel. Um, Tori is uh, obviously uh, very well known in the travel industry here in, in Queenstown, welcome along Tori. Hi Tim, thank you so much for having me today. Okay, so where we like to sort of start these podcasts, uh, Tori, is a bit about early life, you know, where you sort of grew up, where were you born, that sort of thing, a bit of family life perhaps, family dynamics. Um, so whereabouts were you born? Actually, I was born in Rockhampton. Rockhampton, there you go. Yep. So that's uh, Rock Vegas, sometimes known as... <laughs> beef capital of Australia. The beef capital. Um, interesting. I mean, I had clients that, that came from uh, Rockhampton, um, so that's where you were born and... Uh, how long did you live there for? Well, born there because that was the, the bustling metropolis uh, <laughs> nearby to where I actually grew up, which yeah. was a small place called the Gemfields, which is inland of, of the coast of Queensland by about 300 kilometres, yeah. just west of Emerald, the coal mining town of Emerald. And yeah. uh, where I grew up was a little place called Sapphire. So a small town um, in a larger sort of four town kind of precinct called the Gemfields, and we mine sapphires, rubies, zircons, garnets, topaz, and all variety of amazing gemstones. As a little girl, it was quite cool because I could go and sit in my driveway and flick through pebbles and pick up this big blue rock and go, oh, look, that's a sapphire. Wow. That's, so you'd know everything about there is to know about um, gems and, and you know special rocks and that sort of... I will admit <laughs> to being a bit of a magpie. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yep. Um, interestingly enough, it's how a lot of uh, people came to Queen, uh, to the Gemfields. They would come um, to start fossicking um, and would stay hoping to find their fortune. So there's a lot of interesting characters who have come sort of from all over the world and based themselves there, despite being quite rural and outback Queensland. It's quite multicultural. And growing up, my friends were Maori, Filipino, Greek... Um, English and a whole variety of, of different nationalities. It was quite cool. One place I've never been to is, is obviously around the gem field, so I, I'm not really familiar um, with, with the area too much even. Uh, I've only been to Rockhampton a couple of times myself. But, uh, yeah, so t- what's it like now? Is it sort of, compared to how you grew up, and if you if you were to look at, do you know what it's like? Is it sort of changed all over the years? or Not a huge amount. Um, it's still a small area, probably around about 2,500 people over the four towns. Um, There's a lot of steadfast locals, people who have made it home and they've been there. All of my friends' parents still remain there, for example, and some of my friends from school as well. There's a small primary school which growing up had about 100 people in it. I think it probably still does now. There was a bus that would take the high schoolers into Emerald, so that was a hour bus ride I went back to boarding school in Rockhampton so back to Rockhampton then um, at the age of 12 but it was a great place to grow up we would um, ride our bikes from one town to the next so the nearest town to me was Rubyvale which was six kilometers away and you'd ride your bike all the way along through mining fields essentially so it was that beautiful red clay Mm. ochre coloured dirt Mm. That would uh, be the landscape with those beautiful dry river gum trees and stringy barks and long, amazing sunsets and sky that wow. just went forever, beautiful horizons. And so you'd ride your bike from, from Sapphire to Rubyvale 
there was a top shop in Ruby Vale and a bottom shop in Ruby Vale and the same again in Sapphire too. So you knew what you needed to get if you were going to the top shop or the bottom shop. Um, a little caravan park in both towns too. One heck of a big hill to have to get up to mm. just before you got to Ruby Vale and then a, a very fast sail down into the town. Um, but as a result of the mining that had happened there, there were a lot of people who did small-scale mining. They would have their own underground mines um, and they would fossick just by the side of the road or in particular patches sort of further off the road and into the, the region. And then, of course, there was also the industrial mining. So we had um, the big trucks, um, big bulldozers and loaders that would get huge buckets at a time of, of the wash and look for the sapphires. And um, a byproduct of that were all these amazing dams and mud pools that, as a kid, I would spend my days playing in. So you, I guess were your parents involved in mining or...? Uh, yes, my dad was was uh, a miner. He originally was tin mining up in uh, northern Queensland and then was fossicking down in um, Sapphire. My mum had uh, been looking for fresh air and uh, uh, more space um, and I had a, an older sister who needed um, not to be in a city, needed um, the fresh air of the countryside. She mm. was... Um, quite asthmatic so she'd headed up there and met my father and um and that became home my mum actually uh had a nursery when I was growing up but she helped put me through boarding school by spending her days on the other side of the road in an old mining field um looking for sapphires and every fortnight there would be a couple of guys come in from Thailand who would bring these amazing scales the old old scales where they put the different weights on them and you would turn up at the shop in Ruby Vale with a jar of sapphires hand them over and depending on what the buy rate was at that particular time they'd weigh it out with their little um, weights and give you your couple of hundred dollars and off you'd go back to home and start fossicking again so during the day my mum had a nursery but when there weren't any people coming and buying plants from her, she'd be on the other side of the road looking for sapphires. Wow, that's yeah, it's an interest. I didn't think this conversation would go, <laughs> go down this way to start off with. So that's very, very interesting. Um, I'd love to sort of have to see what's going on out there. That's that sounds sounds fascinating, actually. Um, so, so I guess you went to boarding school when you were twelve in, in mm-hmm. Rockhampton. Um, and what was that like? I mean, what, obviously, when you were a teenager, what were your teenage years like? What did you get up to in, in those sort of years, and what was your first job? So I was at a Catholic boarding school, yeah, uh, which which was quite insular, um, and it meant that uh, I was quite a good girl. Mm. Um, I made up for that when I went to university and had the freedom of, of adulthood and, and no sort of confines of, of um, buildings with, with bars on and the sort to kind of keep the ladies in. Yeah. Our boarding school was um, for girls only, but the day school that we attended was a co-educational school. Um, and that was really interesting because we had, again, people sort of from all over outback Queensland who were coming to go to school. So you had um, farming background, you had uh, mm. mining background, you had a, um, lots of agriculture, and then people who just wanted to, to put their children through a boarding school as well. So you formed some really interesting um, friendships and I've got some amazing friends still from that time. You had to become each other's family. 
because you didn't have um, you didn't have someone who you know if you break up with your boyfriend or you don't do well on your test or whatever reason you need to have a cry and have a hug with your mum you don't have that so you kind of have to very quickly learn how to be independent which later on was quite good when we all went down to Brisbane for university because um, it put us in a better stead than those students who had been day students they weren't prepared for living an independent life making their lunches getting to and from university on their own so it was good it set me up quite well one thing I really loved about boarding school was um, during the second world war in Papua New Guinea when Australians were trying to get onto the other side of Papua New Guinea through the Kokoda Trail the PNGers would help all of the Aussie soldiers and as a result of that they were called the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels and um, to say thank you for that the Australian government offered to educate the students of or the youth of, of Papua New Guinea. And if you went to a boarding school, inevitably for the final three years, year 10, 11 and 12, you would be paired up with um, a bunch of PNG students. So I, in my final years of school, was sharing rooms with um, students from Papua New Guinea who would braid my hair, they would teach me pidgin English, we would tell our supervisors that we were speaking beautiful words saying hey I love you and you're my friend but actually we were swearing our heads off at the supervisors and they had no idea and when they started (laughs) when they started saying the same words they'd come down the hallway and call out some particular swear word and we'd all laugh and repeat it to them they didn't know it was a nice private little in joke so um being there there wasn't a huge opportunity for work but I managed to get a job um just kind of tidying a friend's house on the weekends um mm. their parents were really really busy and knew that I was looking for something so it gave me that opportunity and then out of boarding school I guess because I'd sort of as you get older you start to see the younger intake of the year eights and year nines who are quite scared and nervous having come away from their family for the first time so I kind of got into looking after them and my very first job was actually in a childcare centre in Emerald for three months before I went to university. Okay, that's interesting. Hmm. So tell us, university, obviously down in Brisbane, I think you said, mm-hmm. uh, what, did you, what was the first thing you were studying down there? Where did you study? Uh, I studied at UQ mm-hmm. in St Lucia. I had gone to study Japanese and theatre. Um, Japanese, really? Yeah, nice. somehow I've no idea how, but I have a, a particular affinity for languages, but possibly because I'm a girl and I like to talk, I'm really good at speaking the languages, but when people speak with me, I just, I flail and I don't, I don't understand a thing. So I'd studied Japanese for five years at high school, continued on so to I do did, that in... I mean, um, something similar to that. I did study Japanese at high school and it sort of got, but it didn't really take it to uni though. I sort of got, I think I took it there and decided to go a little different direction. Which but. is actually exactly what I did. Six months in, I didn't, I couldn't keep up with the class, um... So what, what, was it just something you'd sort of gone past? I, mean, what? I think it's just my inability to actually understand because okay. it felt for me like I could read it, I could write it, I yeah. could speak it, but mm. when people were speaking with me, I just didn't have that babel fish in my ear that some people are born with that they're able to translate and understand mm. perfectly. I, I study Spanish now and I've been studying Spanish for over 10 years and it's exactly the same thing. I can speak it and I can order my beer in South America without issue, but I can't really answer that many questions Mm. so um my focus switched to theater 
which was the other reason I was at university um, in Brisbane. And I um, ended up with a Bachelor of Arts and a double major in theatre studies. And my intention was to become a famous actress and director <laughs> and uh, tread the boards of um, QTC and STC and finally make it to Hollywood. Um, but at the same time, I needed a job. And I got a job in a cafe and met a friend there who knew I wasn't enjoying myself at this cafe job. I, my heart wasn't in it. I really just wanted to be on stage. And he said to me at that time, you have an individual stage each time you go up to a table and talk to people. You have new audience, new people to interact with. And it completely changed the way that I work and offer service now in, in every job that I have. I had a captive audience. If they wanted a coffee, if they wanted a cake, if they wanted a pasta, they had to talk to me and I loved it. Mm. I ended up, that totally changed my perspective. And yeah, okay. um, for years after that, I worked in hospitality before finally landing myself a job in travel. Mm, okay, so, so, but, so how long did you live in Brisbane for when you were at uni and all that? Uh, I was in Brisbane for uh, six years. I went from 1996 to 2001, so five years, I guess, then. Um, I remember seeing in the Millennium at the Woodford and Mullaney Folk Festival, um, thinking that that everything was going to end at midnight and (laughs) none of the ATMs would work and everything would go a bit crazy, and it didn't. It was just another day. Um, That's about when I moved up to Brisbane, actually. It was um, just after the millennium. Um, Yeah, so that's that's quite interesting. Uh, But there for five or so years. Mm -hmm. And then what drew you away? Where did you go after that? I went driving around Queensland for a wee while. I bought a car from a friend for a carton of beer and a cooked chicken. Um, they were trying. I remember <laughs> they were trying to um, to get rid of it. That's not one you forget, really. It was a okay. Toyota Corolla that was really. He was trying to give it away, basically. And I said, "Well, I can't. I can't just take your car. What do you want for it?" And he said, "I oh, will give me a carton of beer and a cooked chicken," which I did. And in return, I got a rubber mallet that sat on the battery because if you needed to start the car, you had to beat the crap out of the battery to to get it to go. <laughs> So we drove around. I had a, a friend of mine who I'd been sharing a flat with in um, West End, and she and I drove around. She was from New Zealand. We both wanted to explore a bit of Queensland, so we drove out to Charleville and yes. Roma and uh, and a bunch of different places and then decided that we would move down to Melbourne. So we moved to Melbourne for a year. I was in Melbourne, uh, again, working in hospitality and just finding my way. I had a good friend of mine who I'd gone through university with and had shared a flat with. He um, is from Palestine and desperately wanted to see as much of Australia as he could as well. So on our weekends or long weekends, we would jump in a four-wheel drive and we would drive out to the Grampians National Park or Mm. we'd take two weeks off to go up to the Snowy River and Jindabyne and um, Little Desert National Park and just explore that whole region of New South Wales and Victoria. Mm. And then finally, um, around about that time, I figured it was time to get a passport for the first time and head overseas. So where was the first place you went to overseas? The Guinness Brewery in Dublin. So you went to Dublin, okay. Yep. I got off the plane and went straight to the Guinness Brewery. Wow. 10 o'clock in the morning. I'd had a, when I was uh, on the Gemfields... Um, 
my parents divorced and my uh, mum met an amazing man from Ireland called Sean Murphy. You don't get an awful lot more Irish than that. His brother is called Patrick, so that's why he couldn't be any more more Irish. And um, Sean was heavily involved in mining and uh, and he wanted me to meet his family in Ireland. So um, we went over to Ireland and uh, spent a few weeks there and um, absolutely loved it. Absolutely Mm. fell in love with the place. Keating is an Irish Mm. name as well and so um, I felt quite an affinity to to the place. Um, It's very green. It's very different from where I grew up because of course where I grew up was red rock and vibrant blue skies and dust and and, dust and not much else and yeah. this was just green and verdant and lovely old stone walls and yeah. the little abandoned houses were stone cottages and it just it was beautiful and they all had this amazing accent so yeah. you couldn't help but love your time there and I really enjoyed Ireland and it was also for me one of my first real exposés into culture we have in Australia and New Zealand um a history but it's a told history it's a written history but it's not a tangible history our oldest bridge is only 200 years old you know our oldest we don't have castles we don't have these abandoned stone cottages we might have some old tin sheds that you drive past every now and then but it was beautiful to be walking on cobblestone streets in Temple Bar and and in Dublin that people had been walking on for literally hundreds and hundreds of years and you feel this kind of energy that's built up with ancestry it was amazing so I really loved that Um, from there I went over to Wales to meet more of my stepfather's family Um, I went to a small town called Estraginlis and won 80 pounds in bingo so all the locals (laughs) thought I was incredibly lucky and um Uh, I loved wandering around there. I found a little womble um, stuffed toy in the $2, not the $2, in a, like a charity shop. And I still have that with me now. That's actually one of the first first things I ever picked up from overseas. And uh, a lot of the places I was travelling to at that time had a significant meaning to me. I studied theatre. Dylan Thomas was quite... Um, important, um, quite a evocative writer. Um, and so I went to Carmarthen um, and then I went to Larne, which is where he had a little cottage. And I sat next to his cottage and read Under Milk Wood. From there, I then went travelling around the UK and I went up to um, Stratford-upon-Avon. I read Midsummer Night's Dream under a weeping willow tree by the River Avon and went to see... Um, theatre by the Royal Shakespeare Theatre Company. I was a massive Beatles fan. I went to Liverpool. I walked down Penny Lane. Um, and a lot of that actually stemmed from, and this is something I, I, it's a mantra I kind of definitely live my life by. I'm 42. When I was 19 years old at a party in Brisbane, telling someone, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this with my life, they said to me, wow, you have a lot of stuff you going to do with your life you need a list why don't you write a list of 99 things to do before you turn 50 so I have a list of 99 things to do before I turn 50 I've done 57 of them now so there's still got 40 something to go yep I do um and some of them are quite easy 
Um, the list has been a little bit fluid and it's changed ever so slightly. But so um, you can can you sort of remove stuff off the list and put something else on? Yeah, what? if it's like I'm no longer really interested in going to the Berlin Love Parade anymore. Um, that was something I was desperately to keen Berlin. to do when I was <laughs> go to Berlin. Yep, absolutely. Um, walk a red carpet um, is still something I'm yet to do. Um, be in a movie is something I'm yet to do. But other things I've done, like I opened a restaurant in Queenstown, I've skydived. So so we'll get to that in a second, that sounds interesting. Um, But with with that list, it it gave me perspective in terms of my travel. So mm. I knew I had to go to Liverpool to to where the Beatles' birthplace was. I knew I had to go to Stratford-upon-Avon. I knew as an avid theatre fan, I had to go to Edinburgh for the Fringe Festival and that was where I ended up. Mm. Um, And then continued to stay in Edinburgh for a year and a half. After that, I mean, people say that Edinburgh is just an absolute. I've never been there, but it's like one person I spoke to about twelve months ago, um, and I actually born on the same day as me. She is, and I, I sort of uh, caught up with her old school friend going way back. Just caught up with her for about an hour, and she said Edinburgh is a favourite place in the world. Yeah, it's in my top three for sure. It's, Absolutely. Um, yeah, so that, that, that was quite interesting. Beautiful place. It is apparently. stunning. Um, it's. It is absolutely beautiful. It has this amazing architecture. It's got this beautiful feel. It's easy to walk around. Um, I never spent much time actually outside of the inner city. Um, I lived in a hostel with 100 expats from all over the globe um, right next to um, the bridge that took you over to the Royal Mile, which was the old part of town, so you couldn't get much more central than that, really. And it was amazing. Again, the the sense of history that we don't have here and, and in Aussie is um, is so real over there. And you do the the ghost tours, and you can actually feel the ghosts walking on tour with you. You, um, you know, we were told that when we went down to play football on the meadows, which is a big field in the centre of Edinburgh, you couldn't take your shoes off because it was actually a big burial ground for plague victims and the plague was still alive in their bones and might come up and seep into your feet so we never took our shoes off and you know there were there were things there that I just I hadn't experienced anywhere else in the world snow for the first time like where it was actually snowing I'd been on a couple of ski trips down to Jindabyne but it never snowed there it was always on the ground by the time you got up in the morning and off you went but um just to see snow in cobblestone streets and against stone buildings and swirling around it was just magical that's edinburgh is magic yeah Hmm. yeah definitely um 99 things is one of those things writing a book about your life because (laughs) that that would be an interesting one 99 things one of the things is writing a book but it's not necessarily specifically about my life i don't i don't know that i'm that interesting but um there's a lot of other stories that i think probably need to be told Um, yeah no that's that's fair enough um, okay, so so the, obviously you did a bit of travel around there. I guess, when did you first come to this part of the world for the first time, the South Island in New Zealand and, and Queenstown? So uh, in Edinburgh, I met a South African. Um, this was just at the start of the internet. You know, we didn't have... It was 2002, 2003. Yep. I'd been to first. Was supposed in, to in go Munich in Munich. Yeah. Was supposed to go travelling around Europe, but spent ten days in Oktoberfest, drank all my money, returned to yeah. Edinburgh on a bus ticket with twenty p in my pocket. And when I came back, <laughs> I met a 
a South African in the hostel that we'd been living in. And right. he and I um, got together and decided we were going to start doing a bit of travelling. So travelled to South Africa to watch the Cricket World Cup in 2003. Um Moved down to England and worked in a hotel that had been owned by Percy Bysshe Shelley's family um, in the 1800s. Um, and then we decided that we wanted to learn how to ski. I'd never really given it any thought at all, um, but knew nothing at all about New Zealand except that it was always there. It was always on the other side of the ditch. So it was kind of why did I need to explore that when there were all these other places to explore. But we decided we would explore. And so we, um, from the UK, you can get some amazing tickets to get to this part of the world that we don't have access to here, and it's because we don't have the same um, buying power, we don't have the same level of traffic. But we bought a one-way ticket to New Zealand, stopping off in Dubai and India, Nepal, going hiking in the Himalayas, heading down to Sri Lanka, um, over to Thailand, down through Malaysia and Singapore, um, catching up with friends and family in Australia and then jumping across the ditch to Queenstown, first to Auckland and then down to Queenstown. And I'll never forget catching a shuttle bus from from the airport and heading to my backpackers, which is no longer there. It was bungee backpackers. And seeing the gondola as you just come around the corner from so the Copthorne Hotel. Sort of mm, yeah, in town, town, where the... Yeah, where the new Holiday Inn Express and Suites is, basically. And that, that site used to be an old been, hospital. Been yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the but South African and I split up in Thailand, but remained yeah. really good friends and decided the end destination was Queenstown. We both had a ticket there, so we may yeah. as well continue. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we kept travelling and we got to Queenstown. So what and year was that? That was, that was 2004. So it's still about 17 years ago. Yep. Around about, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we decided for our first week in Queenstown, we'd we'd go our separate ways, Check try out, and yeah. get some friends, establish things without each other, and then after yep. a week, couldn't really afford to, didn't have any job, so we went and got a flat together, and um, Queenstown was amazing at that time. It was really magical because it was, I arrived on the 2nd of June. It was just starting to feel like winter. It was cold. It was lovely. It was, yep. Starting to get a bit of snow on the mountain. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it felt really pretty. It was quite a nice place to be. And having just been somewhere cold in the Northern Hemisphere in in, um, Scotland, it it kind of suited how I was feeling. Um, You'd have to line up outside the mountain scene at 4.45 on a Thursday afternoon because we didn't have the Lakes Weekly Bulletin then. We didn't have um, any online job listings. There'd be a throng of people, a massive crowd of 50, 60, 70 people all looking for flats, all looking for jobs, and the mountain scene was the only place you could find it. Alternatively, maybe you'd find it on the notice board of your hostel. But at that point, you could only stay in your hostel seven days at a time, so you always had to move on and find somewhere else. So all of these people, all desperate to to find a home, find a job, call this place home, all gathered together on the street and the mountain scene staff would come out at five o'clock on the dot with big stacks of paper, pop them down and everyone, it was carnage, everyone would grab a paper, open up, start calling people, seeing if you could apply for jobs, seeing if you could get a flat. We were lucky enough to get um, a flat 
right in the heart of town on yep. Shotover Street. And right. in that flat, that was one of those back in the days where rooms were rented out. Well, still, that hasn't changed. Rooms were rented out by the room. Um, we had a, a dodgy landlord who gave us a heater with a timer on it that would only last half an hour at a time. <laughs> the flat was so wet, there was always condensation on the windows. There was a string of mould that was hanging from the shower that was about 30 centimetres long. And no one wanted to touch it because it was there when they arrived and it wasn't their mould, so they weren't going to do anything with it. It was there when I arrived, it was there when I left. And um, while we were living there, there was a a guy who still lives in town now, a local guy who was a DJ at the time, and he told the South African that there was a job at the pub across the road. So he went and got himself a job across the road. I started selling tickets to a bar crawl um, in town, and um, the South African had said, give me a, a week to make some friends, and then um, then I'll introduce you to everyone. And I did, and um, the first night I went into his bar... The first person I met, he said, this is Malcolm. I married Malcolm, and I've been with <laughs> Malcolm for 17 years. Wow. Um, and the nice little final piece to that puzzle, I guess, is that when Malcolm and I got married in Queenstown 10 years ago, the yep. South African came over for our wedding, mm-hmm. and it was a wonderful reunion of all of our friends who we'd met wow. in Edinburgh. Um, they all came over as well, and it was the first. We'd had a couple of reunions, but there was, this was a big, massive one. Mm. And at my wedding, he and one of the girls from our hostel, who was from Melbourne, hooked up, and three years later, Malcolm and I went to South Africa for their wedding. Yeah. So still friends. I don't think just because you've broken up with someone, mm. you can't be friends. You have a history, obviously. You had a lot of stuff in common, and, you know, there will be some circumstances where things go wrong and you don't remain in touch at all but we had a wonderful time traveling together and I still speak to him and her regularly and and they're very much a part of my life so I love that so since, since 2004 you lived here the whole time the know, whole time in, yep. in this area mm-hmm. so ex-travel let's talk a little bit about ex-travel when did that start and how did you sort of get involved in, in that so that started four and a half years ago yeah um when I decided that I was going to call Queenstown home. I knew I wanted to keep travelling, but um, still wanted to have a base. My husband had um, two kids at the time who were five and eight, and I saw that a job was being advertised with House of Travel. And I didn't have any experience, but I begged for the job. Mm -hmm. I told them that they could find people who had all the computer skills they needed to make the reservations and write the tickets, but they wouldn't find anyone else who had the passion for travel that I did. Mm. And somehow I blagged my way in and they believed me and they gave me the job. I worked with them for five and a half years and then we had the GFC. Mm-hmm. And so nobody yeah. was travelling after so the GFC. So you were doing that just not, not too long after you moved? Yep. Yep. yep, yep, pretty soon. I had owned a restaurant in between. So the, just quickly on the restaurant, <laughs> which restaurant was it? It was um, an organic restaurant called Harvest Organic Restaurant. I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, I had um, expectations that we would have an organic revolution in Queenstown, but... 16 years ago, it was just a little bit before its time. So that didn't last, but... Um, sort of in town or where was In that? town, right yeah. on Beach Street, upstairs. Yeah. Um, the Tatsumi bar, that uh, okay. Tatsumi restaurant's there now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was um, a learning experience, and I learned never to do that again. Yeah. Um, and that kind of finalised my foray into hospitality, and I transferred those service skills over into 
travel. The transactions I was having with people were more meaningful. I was, you know, able to sell a steak and a, and a lovely glass of wine in a restaurant. But this way I was able to sell a lifelong memory and, and you know, give people a really wonderful experience when they travelled overseas. So after the GFC, that House of Travel closed down and I got a job with um, World Travellers, which was aligned with the EyeSight and they were right next door to the EyeSight. Worked with them for five and a half years and then um, again, rents in Queenstown, quite high, margins in travel are not really there. And so that closed down and started brokering. Yep. So that's where I was working for the company, but from home and mm-hmm. and uh, moving more towards a commission-based option as opposed to a wage or salary. And my business partner, Nikki, who um, started X Travel with me, one day said, right, it's time. We've got to go and do our own thing. We'd been made redundant previously by people who didn't live in Queenstown but had this expectation that people who live in Queenstown want to only do five-star cruises and five-star um, tours and business class all the way. And that's not what Queenstown is about. Queenstown is very much about people who are intrepid and adventurous and want to carve their own path. And we felt that we needed to be able to offer something that wasn't cookie-cutter, it wasn't, you know, package deals to the Gold Coast or, or you know... This particular tour, we wanted to find things that really connected people with the places that they were going to and the people they were going to meet and interact with. So we started X Travel four and a half years ago, um, deciding that no one else was going to tell us how to run our lives or what to do with our careers and all decisions would be made entirely by ourselves. We took a team member with us and we worked from home um, and then eventually set up um, an office in my business partner's place and then continued to kind of grow. We took on a sub-broker who was quite interested in uh, specialising in ski and snow and we came here to the Mountain Club in September 2019. Fresh-faced, ready to have a, a travel agency but not a um, not a walk-in one. We didn't want to be shop frontage where people could come in and find us and um, we wanted to be able to offer a more personalised, bespoke experience for our clients. And if you were looking after everyone who's coming in and asking where they can change money or, you know, can they change their ticket that they haven't booked with us, it's quite difficult. So um, this place suited us really well. We're in now a shared office space um your listeners can't see it but we're in a a great place that um is really vibrant and dynamic we have people from lots of different walks of life and lots of different businesses right now i can see architectural plans out through the window and i know that the person next to him is trading shares and i know that the person behind him is doing digital marketing and you know it's quite nice to be able to bounce off each other and talk about what's happening in different people's industries it gives you a chance to think outside yourself mm. and see what else is happening in the world. So um, we have been making fantastic holidays for people. We're just in the process of starting to grow. We took on a couple of um, ladies from other parts of New Zealand, one from uh, just outside of Masterton in the North Island who brings mm. over um, uh 
people from the US who want to have hunting experiences in New Zealand yeah. where they go and shoot um, uh, deer yeah. and tar. Um, we have another lady who works with us in Mosgill and she helps organise conferences and weddings and incentive groups. And uh, we just partnered up with Winter Pride as their official travel partner. Winter Pride's the largest um, Pride winter pride festival in the southern hemisphere and um things were going great this is just before covid i'm gonna guess you and then covid happened yeah no it's it's crazy how the world can sort of change on a dime and i'm sure it's affected affected uh, your business you know certainly the last year yeah um in a, in a and even probably up to date you know until until things are sort of rolling it's just it's had a huge effect on the travel industry and travel businesses and flights and it has. It's the, the world has basically come to a standstill. Mm-hmm. And what's really upsetting for me now, having been in the industry for nearly 15 years, is that I've watched friends who, you know, as a travel agent, mm-hmm. we, we do travel overseas with other agents. We, it's not glamorous where we get to go and take our husbands away all the time, and, mm-hmm. and, but we will often go and do familiarisation trips yeah. of different places. Yes. And so when you're travelling overseas with people, you form a bond, you form an affinity with them. And I have a lot of people within the travel industry who I would call my travel family. And mm. they have built their businesses from scratch. They yeah. have put their heart and soul into it. They spend their time creating bespoke experiences for their clients. And now they have had to completely unravel these itineraries that they spent ages working on. And... Um, yeah, and years researching. Yeah, guess, yeah, absolutely. So that has been incredibly devastating, and um, we've had some support from the government. We, you know, everyone in New Zealand had the wage subsidy, which was fantastic, and we've had a little bit of extra support in terms of um, financial support for helping process refunds for mm. clients who have funds held overseas. Yeah, but we still haven't really addressed the fact that. Not just us, but there are quite a few... While the while New Zealand has come out of this incredibly well, there are still quite a few industries who are hurting terribly and still very much in the thick of COVID. And then when you look outside New Zealand as well, um, the border to Chile is currently closed. Mm. Um, Argentina has closed its borders to Brazil and Mexico and Chile. Mm. Um, there are some countries that no one will accept anyone from. You know, um, India is is flailing and and yeah. not faring mm. very well at all. And it's we're so insular. It's very easy to forget as we get up and go to work and have our coffee and you know go to the pub after work and have a wine or a beer and or a mulled wine now as the winter starts to set in. It's very easy to forget that other people around the world are still hurting very much. Yeah, that's it's. It's uh, not not. Uh, it's obviously not great what's happened, and uh, obviously we've got to try to try to find a, a way forward. That's that's the hardest thing is the uncertainty. Is okay. Well, what what what's how do we plan now? I mean, mm. How do we plan if we if, if governments are going to keep borders shut for the next twelve months? Um, apart from the Trans Tasman bubble, yep. for example. Um, what do you think about the Trans Tasman bubble? Do you think that's going to is that going to help this area at all? Or how do you think that's going to work? I think once we actually get some snow um, I think that will make a difference right now um, Kiwis aren't traveling to Australia unless it's to visit friends and family seems that way yeah yep and uh, and we don't have that many Aussies coming over right now no but to be honest 
in May in Queenstown, we never have that many people coming to visit. It's, a quiet it's not month, the. Is it, yeah. it is a quiet month. When I first arrived here, this was the month that people would shut up their shops or their restaurants and go away for six weeks, and you know it was not unusual to see um, restaurants closed for six weeks at a time. Mm. You'd have to just find somewhere else to eat. Um, so May's never been a, a big tourism month for. Queenstown anyhow but I think definitely I mean as I said we're the official travel partner for Winter Pride mm. we are getting an awful lot of Aussies coming over for Winter Pride and that's really so when exciting. When does Winter Pride start? So that's at the end of August it runs so for a week from August, August to September yep. okay. but I do know also that the hotels are starting to get a lot of bookings yep. for the school holidays in July and I think once July comes by that's really going to kick us off. Mm. I think for now, people are still a little bit nervous. Yep. Um, mm. Aussie's a big, big, big continent. Um, mm. Rarotonga, in comparison, has been completely different. It is just about already sold out for the rest of the year in terms of accommodation and flights. There's mm. very little available left because everybody is desperate for a holiday. Mm. So um, I think once people start travelling and seeing other people travelling, it will make a bit of a difference. But early indications, early survey results have suggested that, you know, up to 25% of people have said that they're not going to even think about leaving New Zealand for at least a year. Yeah, makes sense. Hmm, yeah. But um, it will be great when it, when it actually starts. Mm. It will be wonderful. This town needs it. We absolutely need it. And it's, it's not just travel agents, of course. It is every single... Yeah, the hospitality um, yeah, industry. Yeah, the hospitality industry. And then all of the industries well, that are tied to that as well. The cleaners, yep. the people who have laundries, the, um, the uh, wholesalers, the food and beverage wholesalers, the restaurants. There's, there's a huge amount of, of people. There's a big flow-on effect. Oh, definitely. That's uh, going to really... Be grateful for this mm-hmm. opening of the bubble. So I guess the pick, you've been here for 17 years. Um, what, what's the pick of the place to live? If you were to live in Queenstown, which area do you think is the best as far as to live? Uh, well, see, I'm a little biased because about well, no, eight no. years ago, I, I packed up and I moved to Kingston. Okay. Um, you, actually, I, you live in Kingston. Right? I live in Kingston now. It's a 25-minute so drive to work. So so you go, do you travel to Kingston here every day? Every day, yep. Along the, the Devil's Staircase? Along the Devil's Staircase, yep, wow. which is an absolutely beautiful That's highway beautiful to drive along. Every day the, the lake, it is scary. Um, every day the lake is um, is different. Um, yeah. The cloud might be really low, the water might be really glassy, it, it might be really like choppy. When you, when you say it's 25 minutes to, to here, it's not very far when you think about it. So if I lived in Shotover Country or Lake Hayes or Arrowtown and I was trying to get home at 5 o'clock... Yeah. It'd take me longer to get to Shotover Country than it takes me to get to Kingston. I have a hundred k speed limit all the way along, and I'm home in a very short amount of time. So I never thought of Kingston like that. Always, it just seems when I sort of think about Kingston, it just seems further away than what you're what you're saying. It's that's um, I've only sort of driven through there a couple of times, maybe maybe twice. You get used that's to the road. You know where to slow down. You might find a, a tourist on the other side of the road, on the wrong side of the road, normally. Um, when borders are open, um, or you might find um, sheep 
sometimes there's yeah, a sheep farm and they, yeah. they close the highway for about half an hour on certain yeah. days. They give us fair warning on our little Kingston Trading Facebook page that yes. they're doing it the next day and they never do it during peak hour. But um, it's beautiful down there. We have a lovely little community. We're all so by the lakefront. Uh, there's about 250 houses. So. Less than 500. Yeah, maybe maybe closer to 800, 900, I guess, with yeah. all the kids and so flatmates and the sort. So, mm. Mm, it's beautiful. You know, the flyer is starting up again soon, and the whole town gets behind that. The whole town gets behind lots of fundraisers and. We have a sports day every every uh, New Year's Day, and uh, we have regular guns and hackers games of golf. We have um, parties still in the golf club twice a year where you buy a ticket and turn up, and someone's playing music, and everyone gets dressed up and has a dance. And so, it, so how long have you been down there for? Down there for eight years now, yeah. just well, about eight years. And yeah. yeah, I do. It's yeah. lovely. There's a. Um, a beautiful waterfall that you can walk to at night it's so quiet you can hear the waterfall the stars are amazing i recently stayed on great barrier island just outside of auckland and that was um new zealand's first ever dark sky sanctuary mm. um and i really believe we could have the same sort of thing down in kingston because every day at night time when i get out of my car if i'm arriving home at night it takes me, even though the door is only a few metres away from the car, it takes me a good three to four minutes to get to the door because I'm looking up mm. and it's stunning. Absolutely beautiful. Mm. The Milky Way right across the sky, Scorpio rising, Southern Cross, fantastic. Wow. Mm. So I guess the future, as, we, as we've seen recently, pretty unpredictable, but any you've got your list. You've got 40-odd items to tick off. Um, what are the five, just give me five things or three or four things or whatever that, that you haven't sort of achieved on your list that you think you will do in the next five years. Um, I'd love to see the whirling dervishes in Turkey. Um, so that would be, that's definitely one I'm quite keen to do. Um, being in Queenstown, of course, we have a lot of filming here and um, so I think get hopefully movie. getting in the movie might be something on the cards sooner yeah. rather than later on account of the fact that we are now mm. definitely seen as a desirable destination for filming. Yeah. Mm. Um, this is a really odd one, and I have no real explanation why. Colonic irrigation. So what does that mean? It's uh, it's uh, having your bowels cleaned out with yeah. a yeah. yeah. Um, someone once told me that not only yeah, yeah that's that's it. <laughs> that's it. I said it's weird. Um, someone once told me that they had it done and their eyes changed colour. Um, because they no longer had any toxins in their body. So I just want to see whether or not that so colonoscopy, would happen. basically. Yeah, kind of, I guess. Um, a lot of them are kind of travel-related. Um, yeah. Writing a book is definitely something I could do now. We were... X-Travel's been incredibly lucky throughout COVID. We've actually pirouetted. I don't like the term pivot, so I've coined pirouette. We've pirouetted yeah. and we've been repatriating... Aussies and Kiwis yeah. and South American well, time. Like so this, we've been like we've been chartering planes between mm. South America and Australia and New Zealand, and we've actually had uh, four go into Australia and New Zealand and six go out. So we've been quite fortunate to be able to do that, and also to be able to do incredibly rewarding work. But the stories it's it's actually the stories of the people who we've been helping, and everyone has said you should write a book. You should write a book because. What we've done is quite momentous. Mm. Each flight is, you know, 
close to a million dollars to to have to sort do yeah. and 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 it's 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 kind of big but there are amazing stories of resilience of the people who have been stuck in places where they didn't mean to get stuck mm-hmm. a gentleman who had come to Queenstown having visited his family in Sweden on his way back to Brazil to his wife and kids who got stuck in um, Queenstown when he had a two-day stopover to visit a mate in Arrowtown, got stuck here for 184 days, separated from his kids. We've had people who have been stuck um, for over 300 days and, you know, we've got these amazing pictures and text messages and emails and just such an outpouring of love of the first time they've been able to reconnect when they come out of quarantine with their Mm. families. It's amazing. So I think being able to talk about the resilience of people and the strength and the courage and the faith, because they had to have a lot of faith in us. We're three chicks in the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand. They've never heard of us. We're not government affiliated. They've put a lot of faith in us. They've had several flights cancel with big commercial airlines like... Qatar and Latam and Emirates so why would they trust this little company of three girls working in an office together chartering these big dreamliner planes mm-hmm. so that's another one and then uh, I don't know um, I'd like to grow a veggie garden that's on my on my list and actually have a, a four season garden I plant veggies I get very excited about them and then I forget about them and they all die so yeah, there's uh, things that I could actually do here and then a lot of it still is very travel-related. And mm. No, I think we might uh, look at wrapping things up pretty <laughs> shortly. We've, we've, we've yeah, gone pretty nearly to 50 minutes, but um, it's been a fascinating uh, podcast. I, it's, I got, uh, you know, you, you never know with these podcasts exactly where it's going to go, where it's going to start was quite interesting as well. Um, some, the, the way you sort of articulate, you know, your story... And uh, where you know where you've been, what you've done, some of the experiences, it, you know, it rolls off your tongue really, really well. So I do thank you for that, and it's I do want you to you know if, if you want to share this to you, just share it to your friends and get it out there because it's a it's a really good uh, story to listen to, uh, well told. Thank you kindly. And um, yeah, no, it's it's great, and we obviously met at the chamber of chamber of commerce back in. In February and... Uh, Bizarrely, right on the spot of yeah. where the very first place I called home in Queenstown was, yeah. the old backpackers. Yeah, as you said, that's mm. right. And, uh, you know, people that have been on the podcast before, like Hamish, I think he said, maybe it was Hamish Walker who said you were a good, would have been a good person to have and then we obviously, um, maybe some other people as well. So it's uh, very, thank you very much for your time. I really thank appreciate you, it. Tori, any final words? No, I've really enjoyed um, the opportunity to talk about myself. There's the theatrics in me coming out now, but um, yeah. it's nice. It's I, I guess you sort of don't really think of your own story as being particularly interesting when you come across so many amazing, interesting people on a daily basis. But thank sure. you kindly for giving me the opportunity to think that potentially I might have something people are interested in listening to. No worries. And if there's anybody else you know, let me know. But, uh, that's I been, sure will. Uh, that's been... Um, Episode number 14 of From the Resort Podcast, and uh, I'll be your host, Tim Wilshire. Thank you very much.